1: Is it possible for a cup of tea to rise to the level of genius? I'm not sure, writes today's guest, but this particular tea that I'm sipping at a cafe in China comes awfully close. It's served in a glass teapot with chrysanthemum buds floating in the hot water like lilies in a Vermont pond. I pour carefully, he continues handling the pot with a sort of hypervigilant care typically reserved for surgical instruments or very small children. Slowly I take a sip. It tastes like beauty. Genius can adhere to any object, no matter how mundane. Genius, this particular kind of genius, is not a noun or a verb, but an adjective, a free-floating property waiting for the right host, be it a person, a place, or an especially good cup of tea. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Renee Garfinkel, your host on the New Books Network with the Van Leer Jerusalem series on ideas. We're pleased to have Eric Weiner on the show today to talk about his new book, The Geography of Genius, Lessons from the World's Most Creative Places. Eric Weiner is a former foreign correspondent for NPR, and a best-selling author of travel investigative books such as The Geography of Bliss, Man Seeks God, and his brand new The Socrates Express. Eric Weiner, welcome to the podcast.
0: Hi, Renee. I'm delighted to be here.
1: We opened the show with that lovely excerpt from your book on the genius of tea. Genius is a kind of slippery label, isn't it? How do you define it?
0: Well, I think genius, you're right, is a slippery label. Uh, sometimes we use it to mean just someone who is very smart and has a very high IQ. But that's that's not how I define genius, because there have been plenty of people with, you know, IQs measured at well over two hundred who didn't produce anything of, of note during their lives, and there have been plenty of Nobel Prize winners and other people with really modest you know IQs of maybe one hundred and twenty or one hundred and thirty, who who have um, produced amazing uh, works of science and art. So I think genius is, first of all, creative, as that passage you read suggests. It, it is an act of of innovation and creativity, bringing something new into the world. And it's also a a social verdict. Um, you know we we get the geniuses that we want and that we deserve. And what I mean by that is, you know, we, we all decide who gets to be a genius. And that might, not, uh, that might not happen right away. You know, it might be in the case of Van Gogh or Bach. Um, it might come well after they're dead, that they're anointed geniuses. So much more than we think, genius is, as I say, a social... Verdict in that we decide as a society who gets the label of genius and who
1: doesn't. So, genius is pretty relative and subjective. Uh, maybe particularly so in soft areas like art and music.
0: Yeah, even in science, I would say, um, in in that geniuses come into favor and fall out of favor, even in science, as because science is always marching on discovering new things someone who we might have considered a scientific genius in centuries past is proved to be wrong in a lot of their conclusions and they lose the label of genius and i realize this definition sort of runs counter to the sort of romantic notion we have of genius that it is immutable it is you know written in stone and someone is either a genius or they're not Um, It makes us a little uncomfortable to think of genius a little more like fashion. Um, I'm old enough to remember the 1970s when people thought really wide ties and bell-bottom jeans was, you know, good fashion. Uh, Now we know they were wrong. Um, So uh, (laughs) Until they come back. (laughs) Until they come back, exactly. So it is genius like fashion is much more fluid than we think but i'd like i'd like to believe that there are certain qualities of aesthetics and beauty and scientific innovation that that do hold that that we're in other words that genius is a social verdict but the jury us as a society are actually pretty good overall pretty good at at judging who's worthy of the title of genius and who isn't
1: there are those who believe that geniuses are born not made and they point to people like Mozart, whose musical genius, they say, was evident by age four. Having explored the subject internationally, what can you say about the emergence of genius in an individual?
0: So there are a number of myths around genius, and I use the word myths not to mean something that is just completely false, but something that is I would say partially true. That doesn't tell the whole picture. And as you, you just brought up myth number one, which is geniuses are born. And we have again, this romantic notion, Mozart being the the prime example of someone who's just popped into the world with this incredible, almost divine ability in Mozart's case to compose music. And it's true. He was, uh, playing the violin at age four and writing compositions by age eight and nine. Um, But we overlook a couple of important facts. Uh, One is that Mozart was born in a very musical time, 18th century, in a very musical place in, in Salzburg, Vienna, and to a very musical family. His father was one of the premier violin instructors, probably the premier violin instructor in all of Europe at the time. Um, his sister who has sadly been lost mostly to the history books was a few years older than Wolfgang. And, uh, she was by all accounts had at least as much innate ability as he did and may have, may have composed, may have been the hidden hand helping him at age eight or nine, write Those early compositions. Um, so we ignore all this and we jump to the conclusion that Mozart was, was just born this way. In fact, um, that's not the case. I don't think it's the case today. I think genetics play a role. But um, as someone who writes books with the word geography in the title, I clearly believe that place and time matter. And then we tend to overlook
1: that. You write, during times of fragmentation, humanity made its greatest creative leaps. What is Danilevsky's law?
0: I mean, Danilevsky's law is that the more sort of uh, petri dishes you have going on in the lab, the better off you are. And a prime example of that would be ancient Greece. Now, ancient Greece at the time of Athens, which brought us democracy and theater and and all these things that we cherish today, um, Athens was in fact one of hundreds and hundreds, probably a thousand city states that were really much more like countries as we think of them today. And because of the topography, the geography of, of ancient Greece and Greece today, actually, um, these city states were cut off from each other by, by mountains and ravines, and they were allowed to grow uh, different cultures, um, different languages, different ways of being. And that helps. I mean, if, if you think about it, you know, one, one crop economies don't do that well, uh, and experiments that only look at one possible outcome don't do that well. But if you've got a lot of Petri dishes going on at the same time, you're more likely that, to see that one of them, ancient Athens in this case, is going to produce this mother load of, of brilliant minds and great ideas.
1: Talk about the roles of intrinsic and extrinsic motivation and creativity.
0: Well, what motivates a person? Um, we we think that in the world of business, it's often extrinsic motivation. Think of Wall Street; you know, people are motivated by the probably the most clear-cut extrinsic motivation, which is money. That's something outside of you that you receive for your creative output. And we think on the other extreme, um, the artist, the suffering artist who's all alone and is motivated p- for purely intrinsic reasons. They suffer for their art, and they. And they are the reward is the art itself. In fact, research shows that it's often uh, a mix of the two um, that motivates people, that even the stockbroker is motivated by the intrinsic reward of beating out his other stockbrokers or feeling good about himself. Um, and, you know, let's take writers, for example. Um, yes. I, I, let's I, take writers. I, let's <laughs> take writers. I don't know many writers um, who would say, I just, write for myself, and I don't really care whether it's published or not. Now, they might say this aloud because they can't get published or they're having trouble, but writers write to be read. And uh, there now, there may be plenty of intrinsic rewards in the act of writing and putting down ideas onto the page and articulating them in just the right way. But ultimately, it is the extrinsic reward, not of money, because there's not much money in this, let's be honest. But in, in, and I'll speak for myself, in hearing back from readers, you know, getting an email from a reader saying, your book helped me, your book changed my life, or at least changed my view of the world. That's, that's an extrinsic reward that's, that's very satisfying.
1: The Greeks thought virtue and genius were inseparable. But we very frequently use the term "evil genius." How do you understand the relationship, if indeed there is any, between genius and morality?
0: It's it's a tough one. You're right. Um, for people like Aristotle, uh, there could be, say, no such thing as a as a um, a good bank robber. Like you could not be a good person. Who produced uh, great art, but ro- robbed banks or killed people? You know, in your time off, he would say that negates your art because you um, you are not a virtuous person as a whole. Um, today, we we separate the two, not completely, but we tend to think, well, there is the art and the artist, the creator, and and their personality, um, and we think that they that they that they can be separated. Um, when I was choosing the the characters for this book and the places for this book, you know, people would say, "Well, you know, what about people? Well, let's let's use the ultimate Hitler. You know, in a way, was he was he a genius and that he was able to rally the German people for you know evil purposes? But isn't there a kind of evil genius, as you say, in in people like that? And I drew the line there." Not just with Hitler, but with with other evil geniuses, and took a more Greek approach in that uh, genius is a force of good in the world, uh, and that the the notion of an evil genius is is in fact contradictory. And I mean, I, I realize that's a you know that's a, a value judgment. People will say, well, there's a kind of genius in in um, you know in in a strong man who's able to, you know, control a population or whatever it is. And I just, I I think that, uh, maybe I'm more ancient Greek this way, that (laughs) that being a, a virtuous person is part of being a genius and vice versa.
1: You cite a study that I found very interesting. It was a study of 700 historical geniuses in a great range of fields, from Darwin and Bach to Michelangelo and Dostoevsky, uh, who lost a parent, usually a father, at a young age. Uh, you know, it's interesting that in children's stories, fairy tales, there is also often a dead parent, usually the mother in those stories. Mm-hmm. But this is not a story. This was a study of 700 geniuses. So uh, what's your understanding of the role of parental loss in creative development?
0: Isn't isn't it an interesting finding? You know that so many, Very. yeah, so many of these geniuses lost a parent, usually a father, at a young age. They also were more likely to be uh, the older child, the firstborn. Um, I, I think, I think what's going on is that genius is partly compensatory; that that the the child is compensating for the loss of a parent through some faculty they have, which is the faculty to create um, to fill a void and they're also asked to grow up more quickly. Um, if you've lost a parent or you find yourself the child of divorce and you know suddenly you know you're the you're the eldest, and we're talking olden times when being the son mattered, you're the oldest son in the family. And now you are asked to grow up quickly and to think like an adult. And I think that plays a role, but it's a bit of a mystery. The, the, the people who did the study don't really reach any definitive conclusions. I'd be curious what, what you think, Renee, what do you think is going on there?
1: Um, I would just be speculating. You know, you know that I'm a psychologist by profession.
0: Well, you're allowed to speculate. Uh, I'm giving you permission, to, spec- I'm giving you permission you. to speculate. Go ahead.
1: We, we always hesitate. Right. I, I'm wondering whether it's uh, all those things you mentioned, and also there's a great influence of a father, especially on the first child, the first son in particular, to follow in his footsteps to influence how he how the child looks at the world, what occupation he follows, um, trying to be like dad and to make dad proud. In the absence of that, there's more freedom for creativity, perhaps.
0: That's a good point. That's a very good point, that um, in a way, they're shackled to the father's wishes and aspirations. And if the father's out of the picture, they're free to explore. Um, I think you you could, could speculatively be, be onto <laughs> something. Um, there's also just the way we process loss, right? I mean that, you know, there's, you know, loss can lead to creativity. Um, you know, I'm thinking of the, the, the Japanese for instance, and how they find such beauty in the cherry blossoms, which are so fleeting and vanishing. And, um, there's a, a famous, uh, Japanese uh, scholar, a scholar of Japan named Donald Ritchie, who who said that beauty lies in its own vanishing, and um, so there's something about loss too. Just I think that might spark the creative output.
1: Well, now that you've mentioned Japan, let's uh, talk a little about Asia. You uh, in the book explores the history of innovation in both in China and in India. Uh, what can you say about Asian experiences of creativity? In what ways are they similar or different from the European golden age?
0: Um, well, they're similar in that they exist, right? We, we tend to have a Western-centric view of, well, many aspects of history, but especially uh, genius. We tend to think of them as, well, I'll be honest, dead white men. Um, and we think of it as a sort of European construct. And that's of course not true. Um, you know, in the 11th, 12th, 13th centuries, you know, when, when, um, you know, when, when Europe was pretty much in the dark ages and and the biggest city at the time was probably Venice with a population of some 50,000 and there was pestilence and there was, I guess what we call backwardness, um, today, um, in, in Asia, in particular, in a city called Hangzhou in China, it was flourishing. It was a city of a million people, the biggest in the world, probably. Uh, and it was a place of great innovation, um, scientifically and artistically and in every way. So first, you know, point one is that, and this is maybe obvious to us today, but it hasn't always been that, that the West has no monopoly on creative genius. Um, The second point is that the Asian flavor of genius, if you will, tends to be a bit different. Um, It tends to be, first of all, more anonymous uh, or communal. Um, A lot of when I started researching Chinese innovations, I often could not find a name attached to some great scientific discovery or engineering feat and that they didn't take as much credit for it. As people in the West did, and they wanted to remain anonymous. Uh, that's one point. Another point is that, and I'm thinking of, of, of Chinese creativity in a way, it tends to not be as novel, as focused on novelty. And that may sound odd to Western ears because we associate genius with novelty. We think they're almost, you know, it, something has to be radically new in order for it to be considered innovative. And the Chinese don't think of it that way. It can be, um, what's the, the word that slips my mind? You know, it, it can be, um, you know, a slight innovation, or it can be even a replica. They would say the artist who replicates a previous artist's work in, is, in his way, a genius. Um, and that's a, that's a different way of, of looking at it because. If you think about it, Renee, like if I were to invent, um, you know, a new kind of coffee mug, um, I guess I'm saying that because I'm staring at my coffee mug right now, but if I were to invent a new kind of coffee (laughs) mug that was so radically different to anything you had seen before, um, you wouldn't know where to put your coffee, how to pour it in, what to do with it. Like if, if it was such a break with tradition, um, it would not be considered, uh, a work of genius because it would not it would not meet one of the criteria of genius, which is useful usefulness. Right, um, mm-hmm. something must be useful, um, and it must be new to some extent, um, and it must be recognizable. So the the Chinese see creative genius as much more as building upon a tradition and not necessarily breaking with that tradition.
1: Uh Uh-huh. Not disruptive, but rather evolving. Evolving more more than evolutionary
0: evolutionary than revolutionary, which I think is a more accurate way, actually, of looking at creative genius, where we're wrapped up in the romantic myth of, oh my God, they broke with everything. And, you know, remember what Isaac Newton said about standing on the shoulders of giants. You know, we, we, we give lip service to that, but then we act like People like, oh, I don't know, Elon Musk or Steve Jobs just sort of came out of nowhere. Well, they they didn't come out of nowhere. They came out of a a tradition, um, and we can't ignore that. We shouldn't.
1: And and that brings to mind a, a line in the book that just jumped out at me, and I think it's lovely. You write, culture is social DNA. Tell us what you meant by that.
0: So... When we use the 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 term culture, you know, in, in the way I use it, um, what, what, what I'm trying to say is that we we act like we just have our ideas. They're just they're just the way things are. And if you've ever thought, well, that's just the way things are, what you're really saying is that's the way things are here and now. And we internalize, um, we in, we internalize the culture. So that as an American sitting here looking out my window in the suburb of Washington, D.C., I see the world through a certain pair of glasses, except I don't know that I'm wearing glasses, right? I think, you know, maybe contact lenses would be a better, I don't wear them, but maybe that's a better analogy, that we just take it as a given, that's the way things are. And in fact, um, a lot of what we take as the way things are are just the way things are in our culture and our time. And the other point of the DNA is that it gets passed on, right? That that um, that what's passed on from one generation to another is really cultural. And like DNA is replicated, it gets replicated. But there are mutations as well. And that's when you see breaks from the past.
1: Why are neither Greece nor China particularly creative today?
0: Ooh. That's a tough question. Um, I, I, I was surprised to find how fleeting these genius clusters, as I call them, the seven or so places in history that, in the world that I looked at, um, how fleeting they were. They would last a few decades, maybe a century or so, but not much longer. Um, you know, I, I've got friends in Greece who say that, you know, they look up at the Acropolis literally up at the Acropolis, because it, it means high citadel, literally. And they just feel small, you know, like, well, what have we done for the last 2,500 years? And, <laughs> um, you know, I I don't fully know why that is. Um, I, I have some theories um, based on research about why they, they sort of don't last very long, uh, which is that it's a very fragile thing. These creative places are held together by a sort of creative tension and that can only last so long. Also, arrogance starts to seep in as it did with the ancient Athenians. And, and arrogance is really the enemy of creative genius because if you think you've got all the answers, you're not going to look for new ones, right? So that sort of right. shuts you down. Um, but why so why don't they get a second shot at it? There've been a few cases. Um, Vienna's one that I write about. It had sort of a two-part double dip of genius, if you will. First around 1800, a musical genius, and then 1900, a much broader-based flourishing in the arts and sciences. Um, I'd like to think that we maybe don't just don't have a big enough picture, that if we step back maybe 100,000 years from now, we'll see that as the Chinese and the Easterners would argue, that time is circular and not linear, and maybe you're starting to see that now, that Chinese innovation is starting to to come back online, and who's to say that, that the Greeks won't have a second shot at it if we take a big enough picture, if you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, Mm -hmm. Sure, Perspective is everything.
0: Yeah, enough time, Uh, and eventually uh, these places may repeat themselves. And, you know, it's interesting to see what happens in China. I'm particularly interested in that, because it's it's becoming such an economic powerhouse, and the Chinese, when I visit there, they're always sort of wringing their hands, when are we going to have a Chinese Steve Jobs? Um, You know, they arguably already have had a few. Um, I, I met and had tea, appropriately, with one of them in Hangzhou, Jack Ma, one of the richest men in China in the world who created essentially the Chinese Amazon. And um, they don't yet have the confidence. And it's really interesting what Jack Ma said to me when I asked him about, you know, what's it going to take for China to have a second act? He said, we have to return to our traditions, in particular, our spiritual traditions of Taoism and and Buddhism and, and those In Confucianism, these ancient Chinese threads. I thought that was a very interesting answer.
1: It is, indeed. Now, there's another country with uh, geography and weather very similar to Greece and to um, Silicon Valley, which you write about. The country has produced more Nobel laureates per capita than the United States. And uh, is the source of inventions that changed the world, such as uh, drip irrigation, which revolutionized agriculture, and a ReWalk, a bionic walking device that enables paraplegics to walk and climb stairs. I think I know where you're to, heading. Uh, to mobilize <laughs> the technology that driverless vehicles rely on. So, how does, does Israeli culture? I? Does it begin with the letter <laughs> yes, it I? Does. Okay. H- how does Israeli culture fit in with uh, what you observed elsewhere?
0: I thought you were going to ask me why didn't you write about Israel in your book? Which is
1: <laughs> what most Israelis ask me it's always. Yeah, well.
0: <laughs> uh, um, um, you're 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 right about that. Um, Israel is a in, an innovative place in in many ways. Um, I think one thing that Israel has going for it is the law of constraints, and this is essentially the notion that uh, creativity really thrives when you're constrained. And again, this goes against our common conception that you know give people everything they need to work with, and and then they will be their most creative. Um, you know, in fact, there've been studies where they they give two groups of people. You know, one group, they'll give them uh, all the materials and all the time in the world they need to build a collage, right? And another group, they'll give them a limited number of materials and a a limited amount of time and say, build a collage. And it is, in fact, that second group, working under constraints, that will produce the more innovative, creative collage. Um, You know, Robert Frost once said that free verse poetry is like playing tennis without a net. We, We need... We need constraints and and true creative genius, I think is largely a reaction uh, in a resourceful, innovative reaction to constraints. And let's face it, Israel's a pretty constrained country, has been since its birth. And uh, Israelis have been uh, forced to find creative solutions and collaborations and Self-reliance is certainly a, a trait that I think most Israelis would agree is something that's deep in the culture, um, and uh, that I think has has definitely played a role. There's also a tradition uh, in Judaism. Again, not talking about anything genetic to be clear. I'm talking about something cultural, but is the cultural tradition of study and learning and knowledge, um, you know, which goes back a long, long time. And that certainly helps play a role in, in a sort of inquisitiveness, um, asking questions. Um, all these, I think, are factors in explaining the, the creative genius of Israel.
1: One of your earlier books, The Geography of Bliss, explored the happiest countries in the world. That includes Scandinavian countries, Switzerland and others. And it's striking that there is no overlap between the happy countries that you wrote about and the uh, genius countries you wrote about. Uh, what do you make of that?
0: Well, there is uh, there is some overlap. I may not have explicitly said so in the geography of genius, but one country that I always like to talk about that that does, you know, if there's a Venn diagram, you have know, creative places and Happy places. One country that I think is smack in the middle of that Venn diagram is Iceland, which uh, is one of the happiest countries in the world, has been for a long time, even through the financial shock of 2007, 2008. You know, they've remained happy and they are extremely creative. Um, They produce, uh, publish more books per capita than any country in the world. They've produced at least one Nobel prize winner. We're talking a country of some 330,000 people. Um, they're known for their music. Um, so it is, it is possible to have overlap. And I'll tell you a brief story that I think explains what Iceland gets right. So I'm having coffee, um, at noon with an Icelander named Hilmar. Now I'm there in January. So noon it's pitch dark out still. (laughs) And, uh, so we're having coffee in a cafe and Hilmar is a composer of uh, classical music and he's hugely successful. He's produced a lot of uh, Hollywood scores and he was a mentor to Bjork who went on to great fame, of course. And, uh, and he, his music is very haunting. It's got this very melancholic tenor to it. And yet Hilmar struck me as a, as a happy person. You know, he didn't strike me as a suffering artist type. He seemed well adjusted. He seemed content. And so I was confused because again, we have this myth of the suffering artist that you must be a miserable person to produce music, certainly sad music. And I asked him, Hilmar, what's going on? And he said, well, I am basically a, a happy person, but I cherish my melancholia. And I thought that was very interesting that he, in other words, he was content, but he had this part of him that was sad, melancholic. And rather than try to eradicate that part or ignore it or go into therapy, uh, he decided to cherish that part of him. It didn't consume him this sadness, but he was able to dip into it uh, as a sort of resource for his creativity. And I think, I think, I think Hilmar was onto something, and I think you know it is possible to have places that are creative, and basically happy as long as they still, you know, as long as it's a real happiness, and not the sort of smiley face kind of happiness that we Americans tend to endorse.
1: Yeah, the Scandinavians also have a bit of that smiley uh, veneer as well. But uh, yeah, that's, that is very interesting about Iceland. Um, and uh, it sounds like, except for the weather and the darkness, an ideal place to live,
0: Although I would argue the weather and the darkness actually make it a little bit ideal too from a creativity point of view, right? It's a nation of extremes, you know, all this sunlight in the summer and this darkness in the winter, and it's got lots of tectonic activity, volcanoes and earthquakes, and and they have a real deep connection to the land. And, um, you know, as I write in the Geography of Bliss, that is one of... Uh, the requirements, I think, for a happy place is to be connected to your surroundings. And the Icelanders certainly are.
1: Well, you've been very generous with your time. And before I let you go, please tell us about your even newer book, your brand new, hot off the press, The Socrates Express.
0: Well, we were just talking about happiness for now, so it's a good jumping off point. At the end of Geography of Bliss, my first book, I I reached the conclusion. Spoiler alert. Okay, that maybe <laughs> happiness is maybe happiness is not enough. You know, maybe uh, this thing I've been going around the world searching for is not really what I want and what we want. Maybe what we're after is not a happy life but a meaningful life. And in order to lead a meaningful life. We need uh, not knowledge. We, we think that we want, just need more information, more knowledge, and then we will have a happy, meaningful life. And that's not the case. Um, we really, what we're talking about is wisdom. And for some people, that source of wisdom is religion. For millions and millions of people around the world, that's a perfectly fine source. For others, it's social sciences. The latest psychology study is a source of wisdom. But it it dawned on me that there's this overlooked source of wisdom uh, called philosophy, which uh, comes from the ancient Greek uh, philosophia, which means literally love of wisdom. And a philosopher is someone who loves wisdom. And that is how philosophy began in ancient Greece, as a, a very practical field of study. It was more than a field of study. It was a way of life, you know you know, how can we be wiser? How can we lead richer, more meaningful lives? And unfortunately, now philosophy is equated with a difficult subject that you're likely to fail in college and and your parents don't want you to study it because there's no future. <laughs> That's right. not how it began. And, and so this book is my at- s- no, modest attempt to resurrect philosophy for our times, or our troubled times, I might add that um, that there is a great practical purpose to philosophy. Uh, so each chapter is arranged as a how-to question, such as how to get out of bed like Marcus Aurelius, a Roman emperor and Stoic philosopher, how to wonder like Socrates, how to see like Henry David Thoreau, how to enjoy like Epicurus, um, all the way up to questions that uh, preoccupy us later in life, how to have no regrets, how to cope how to grow old like Simone de Beauvoir, and, and finally how to die like Montaigne. And, um, you know, don't be put off by all these foreign words and names and terms. I mean, it is, like my other books, uh, accessible and I try to make philosophy fun and meaningful. And uh, there's a train or rather many trains involved because I like writing trains. I find I can think on a train and I cannot think on an airplane or in a car or a bus, but there's something about train travel that is conducive to philosophy and, and contemplation.
1: And you're uh, right on target because these days we certainly can use the uh, consolation of philosophy, as one writer put it.
0: yes, and we we need that. And uh, these philosophers have been there. you know, a lot of them did their writing and thinking. During times actually way worse than ours, we tend to think we're living in unprecedented times, and that's really not the case. You know, humanity has endured and survived much worse, and if nothing else, these philosophers are there to r- remind us of that.
1: Well, I wish you lots of good luck with both of your new books, Eric. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for being on the show and sharing your knowledge and creativity with us.
0: Thank you, Renee. I really enjoyed this.
1: And thanks to our researcher, Bela Pasikoff. Bye-bye now.